Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Sorry for my delay. Yeah, you want these? There we go. All right, let's do this. We are in Hosea. Turn there, please, in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. We want to give one to you. So please be sure to see us afterwards. We're in chapter 11 today of the book of Hosea. We have uh, four more chapters, including chapter 11 in the book. And I, I set out with the ambitious goal of finishing the book today. Um, but I failed. Um, so we're going to get pretty good, uh, far along here. Actually, next week when we come together, uh, we'll finish the book of Hosea, Lord willing, and uh, celebrate communion together next week. So it should be a, a fun morning together um, doing so. Let's pray. Father, open up our eyes to see. Lord, as, uh, even as that last song, Lord, as we, we just seek to abide in you and, and hear from you, that your voice would be clearer than all the other voices that... Um, vie for our attention. And Lord, in, in this period of time that we'd be able to sit, Lord, under you and allow you uh, to minister to us. And so bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you recall the book of Hosea kind of has, well, it does, it has these different sections and there's a real clear break in the sections, chapters one, two, and three, and then chapters four, to the end of the book. And, and chapters four to the end of the book has a series of sections as well. But chapters one, two, and three was this picture. Hosea, go and marry a woman that's going to become a prostitute. And through that relationship, you'll see, you'll begin to understand what it is that I deal with, with my people, the people Israel. This is what the Lord is saying. And so Hosea, in obedience, he went and did that. And just as the Lord said, she would go on, his wife Gomer would go on to be an unfaithful woman. Um, get herself involved not just with adultery, but prostitution, ultimately debt, and ultimately slavery. And he has to go and buy her back from that slavery and bring her back to himself. And so in many ways, there are these three phases to their relationship. There's that initial honeymoon, bliss, happiness, everything is wonderful. Then phase two, she goes astray, ultimately to the point of slavery. And then phase three, he purchases his wife, he brings her back home uh, and there's restoration to the marriage. And as we transition to chapter four, that's what we've been seeing. There's been these cycles, there's uh, five, I believe, total in the book, but there's been these cycles where Israel and the Lord are together, Israel goes astray, is, uh, the Lord goes and finds them, and there's restoration. And you have sort of these ups, up and down cycles there. It mirrors the experience of Hosea, the man, mirrors the experience of the Lord. Now, as we come to chapter 11, we're, we're going to be looking at the last of those cycles. 11 through 13, essentially, is the last of those cycles. And it's helpful, before we get going, just to distinguish, there's sort of this um, alternating pattern where the Lord himself is speaking, and you'll see him say words like I and my throughout these sections, and then Hosea is speaking. And so the beginning of chapter 11 through chapter 12, it's the Lord. Then the beginning of chapter 12, it becomes Hosea. Then it goes back to the Lord. Then it goes back to Hosea. And each time, as, you'll, as you notice this, hopefully you'll start picking it up. When the Lord is speaking, even though he's the one that's being sinned against, his heart is broken and he's desperate that they would return to him. And he speaks from that place of desperation. He's yearning to show his mercy. There are times he'll say, what shall I do with Israel? How could I judge Israel? Then there are the instances where the prophet himself is speaking. And when Hosea is speaking, Hosea will just recount the history of Israel and how judgment is inevitable and how judgment needs to come upon them. And so you have sort of these cycles here, the Lord Hosea, the Lord Hosea in this section that we're going to look at. And, and I, f I feel it's important for us to just sort of stop and consider this for a second because right alongside of Hosea's honest assessment, you guys have gone off the rails and you need to be judged in order to be brought back to the Lord. You have this heart of the Lord desperate 
that these folks would return. That's the Lord we serve. He loves us. He desires good things for us. We are like the prophet Hosea sometimes, even in our own lives. We know we deserve to be judged. And yet the Lord in his mercy, he reaches out, he calls us. And so let's jump in, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. And it's almost as if, again, notice I, 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 it's the Lord speaking. And it's almost as if the Lord is remembering nostalgically back to those times. We found a picture recently in my house uh, before my daughter was born. And so my boys were less than four. Uh, years old. Jake was probably five. Luke was probably three or something. And we, we just recently found it. So it's up on the fridge. So I see it all the time. And it's a picture of me holding both of my boys. Now, if you've seen my boys now, that's not going to happen uh, too well, you know, because they're up closer to 20 years of age now. But these two, two little guys, and you remember back nostalgically to those times. And the Lord kind of does that. He remembers back to that time. He compares himself, if you will, to a dad who's called his son, trained his son, only to have his son turn and rebel against him. And so notice what he does, starting in verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It, it, that's, if you will, like the birth of his son. You know, and when his, his son was born, he said, when I called them out of Egypt, he says, I taught you to walk. Uh, in my, I'm putting words here. It's as if he's saying, I remember when I stood over you, and I would reach my arms down and I would take hold of your little hands. And my legs would sort of be stretched out around your little body and I would lead you by the hands and I taught you how to walk, he says there. He says, I led you out with cord, cords of kindness and bands of love. That, the idea there is I knit myself to you, I attached myself, attached myself to you and I led you to the places that you should go. He says, I bent, bent down and I fed you. And I, I couldn't help but thinking of that, that little airplane game we play with kids, you know, because they won't eat. But if you make it like an airplane flying into the landing, then maybe they'll open their mouth, like wondering, what are you doing? And then you shove it in, you know, and you get it down deep enough so that it, it just goes down or whatever. He, he's done all these things lovingly for his son, his child. But despite all of those efforts, look at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went astray. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. That's the gods of the foreign nations and the foreign people. They kept sacrificing to those gods and, and burning offerings to their idols. And because of that, because they refused to link themselves up, yoke themselves up with the Lord, they would become yoked to another, as he says there, enslaved ultimately by the Assyrians. Verse 5 says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. All right, why bring up Egypt? All right, they're not going to go to Honolulu. Why bring up that place? Well, remember, Egypt is where they used to be enslaved. And so he said, essentially, he's saying they're going to be enslaved again, but not to Egypt this time. They're going to be enslaved by the Assyrians because they refuse to return to me. The sword, it says, shall rage against their cities, consume their, the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. And so verses 1 through 4, it dealt with Israel's past where God called them and fed them and taught them how to walk, but they rebelled. That's their past. Verse 5 and following would deal with the future soon to come for them, and in reality, it's become Israel's present. Even to this day, 2,500 years later, where the nation of Israel, who because they had turned away from the Lord, had to undergo this captivity, the, the sweet years of their infancy and toddler years. years. And whoever said toddler years were sweet, um, but they, they were in this particular thing. But in, instead of that, they had to be delivered over to harsh and the, the harsh and painful realities of judgment. And once again, go into captivity. Verse 7, the Lord says, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. They're bent on this. That means they're determined to do this. The, the word they're bent on, it means they cling to this idea. 
They hang on to something and they're not letting go of that particular thing. They're determined to turn away from the Lord. And they will not stop turning away from the Lord. And because of that, because they're determined to, to turn, not to turn away, or to turn away, I should say, the Lord says, though they call out to me, I will not raise them up. By that he means I won't hear them. They're going to call out to me, but I won't hear them. Now, I read that and I was like, well, that seems odd. Isn't that the whole point? You know, make it, make it difficult for them so that they say, what are we doing? They come to their senses and they call out to the Lord. So if they're going to cry out to the Lord here, why wouldn't the Lord hear them? Because it seems, again, that's what they're supposed to do. Well, we remind ourselves of this. It is indeed God's purpose that they would return to him. And by virtue of the fact that he will not listen to them when they do turn to him, is an indicator to us, as we've seen a few chapters later, this is a false repentance again on the part of the nation of Israel. This is one of those instances, Lord, make the pain stop. What do you need me to do? What do you want me to say? I'll say anything. Just make the pain stop. Cause it to go away. And the Lord anticipates that once again. And so he says, they'll call to me, but I won't hear them. He anticipates it's going to be a false repentance, a shallow repentance on the part of the people. And so he again says, I'm going to bring judgment upon them so that they will turn once and for all. Not just some temporary turning and they'll go back to their old ways once again. He says, if they call out to me in the manner of repentance that I require, chapter 14 will tell us what that is, I'll hear them. Go on, notice verse 8. So again, verse 7, the Lord says, look, I'm delivering them over to judgment. I won't hear them if they cry out to me with some false cry or whatever. But notice what he says then in verse 8. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? I really think that, uh, and I'm no biblical scholar necessarily, but I really think verse 8 should begin with the word but. Because it's, that seems to be the Lord's heart. He says, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Remember, Ephraim is another name for Israel. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I hand you over? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So again, how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Adma and Zeboim? Uh, anyone know those names? Not too familiar. Adma and Zeboim, Deuteronomy chapter 29 tells us, were two of the five cities that were destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So in Genesis, when we read that particular story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it tells us Sodom and Gomorrah. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23, mentions two other cities of the group of five are Adma and Zeboim. And so that's what the Lord is saying. How can I destroy Israel as I destroyed those cities? He says, my heart recoils within me. It pulls back naturally from doing so. He says, my compassion grows warm and tender. And the Lord here, he portrays himself as being inwardly divided. How can God be inwardly divided? And yet he, he, he is, he allows himself, his heart is, and he vacillates back and forth as to what to do next with the nation of Israel. He, he demonstrates that he's uncertain, if you will, about what to do next. And I find this interesting because it's Israel's sin that has brought these things upon themselves, brought them to the brink of judgment, and yet it's the Lord who hesitates rather than Israel. You would think Israel would hesitate regarding their sin because of the judgment that's coming to come, and yet we find it is the Lord that is the one that is hesitating here. Well, when we open the chapter, we saw God's sovereignty. I didn't mention it too much here, but he chose Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. Why did he choose Israel and not Jordan or something like that? Why Israel? Why those people? Because he decided. That's what he determined he was going to do. Deuteronomy says this. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on Israel and choose Israel because they were more numerous than the other peoples, because they were fewer than all the other peoples. It was because the Lord loved them and kept the oath that he swore to their ancestors that he brought them out with a mighty hand. What that means is, in his sovereignty, he decided. I'm choosing Israel 
as my own, and they're going to be my people. Here now, he essentially goes back to that argument of his own sovereignty, whereas Israel deserves to be judged, deserves to be sent off into captivity, and deserves to be ignored for the rest of time, he essentially steps in and he says, you know what, but I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. My compassion is raised up in me, risen up in me to the level where I must show them mercy. I should judge them. Their sin has warranted that I judge them, but I choose not to, he says. Verse 9, he says, I will not again destroy uh, Ephraim. And then in so many words there, he goes on to say, because I'm God and I get to decide. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with the Lord. He says, I'm the Lord. I decide I'm going to show mercy to a people that don't deserve mercy. Now, does anybody have a problem with that? Some people do. The Jews don't deserve mercy, all these things that they have done. If the Jews don't deserve mercy, and by the way, nobody deserves mercy. But if God can't show the Jews mercy, then you don't get mercy. Every one of us is a people that is in need of judgment. We deserve judgment. And yet the Lord in his graciousness and his kindness, his grace and his kindness, he intervenes and he says, but I can't judge. He says, I will not, verse 9, execute my burning hour, anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. Now, you know the history. I hope as a body of believers, most of us, the majority of us, we know the history of the Jewish people. Judgment did come from them, for them, I should say, Right? The northern kingdom, 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came from the north and a little bit from the east, and they came down and they took the people captive. Brutal, horrible uh, situation. They would put uh, human-sized fish hooks into the mouths of people, and they would lead them astray, and they'd rope them one to the other, and they would lead them off. They would take uh, the, the women, the pregnant women in particular, they would slice open their bellies, pull out the baby from in there, the baby from in there, and they would destroy the baby. They were horrible people. Judgment came for Israel, and yet the Lord says, but I won't judge Israel. We know 150 years after that, the Babylonians entered into, not just the northern kingdom, but entered all the way down into the southern kingdom. So which is it? Does God decide to judge or not to judge Israel? Well, the reality is, as with a lot of things in the Bible, the answer is both of those things. The point that is being made is that God decided not to completely and totally judge the Jewish people. And by that, what I mean is that he would use the temporary judgment of the Assyrians, the temporary judgment of the Babylonians. He would remove the people from the land. He would disperse the Jewish people around the world where essentially they, were, they would remain dispersed for about 2,400 years, but that all of that would be a part of his ultimately and permanently bringing them back to the place of full and total restoration. Again, does Israel deserve it? Of course they don't, just as none of us do. But God in his wisdom has devised a way in which both his holiness and his love can coexist without either of those being diminished in any way, without either of those being compromised. And of course, what is that way? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. God's plan for restoration of both Israel and of every one of us in this room, at great personal expense to himself, was that he would give us the life of his own dear son. And Jesus paid, we know, the price of our sin which allows God, as Paul would go on to say, to be both just and the justifier of sinful humanity. And I got to read this. It's so good. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't know that about yourself, do business with the Lord this morning. Have him search out your heart and soon he'll re you'll realize I am a sinner and I have fallen short of the glory of the holy God. He goes on, he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfactory payment of propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, fair, honest, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so 
the Lord in his sovereignty decides he will not utterly destroy the Jewish people. And so he orchestrates things so that those people will one day come to their senses. You remember the New Testament story of the prodigal son who finally, dealing with the consequences of his sin, it says, comes to his senses. And the scripture makes it clear that the Jewish people will do just that. He goes on in verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their home, declares the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to carry them into captivity, but I won't wipe them out in captivity. And I'm going to bring them back again. And that day, I would suggest to you, has only partially been fulfilled with the miracle of the nation of Israel in the world today. As many of you know, the Jewish people were a people without a land for about 1,900 years. And in the history of humanity, when something like that happens, it typically takes two or three generations for a people to lose their particular identity. I'm Irish, I'm Italian, I'm French, or whatever it may be, and eventually be assimilated into the culture where they are dispersed to the various places. And yet for the Jewish people, God miraculously, I would say, preserved them as a distinct people. So that after 1,900 years of being scattered all about into other parts of the world, the Lord begins to call them back. And in 1948, a miracle, the nation of Israel is reborn once again, a homeland for the Jewish people. But that miracle is only a partial fulfillment of what God will do in a future day. He will bring a people back to himself physically, as he's already started, and spiritually. And that occurs with their repentance at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing, look at verse 12. Now chapter 12 goes right into the next chapter as well. And so let's read these verses here. Beginning at verse 12, we read this. Ephraim, did I say chapter 12? I meant verse 12, goes right into chapter 12. It says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The point there being this, Israel knows that judgment is coming from Assyria, from maybe the neighboring nation to the south Egypt or whatever. And so relying on their own wisdom, they begin to make covenants and alliances with Assyria, covenants and alliances, business agreements with the area of uh, Egypt below. They're going to sell their oil. The costly oil is not black gold or Texas tea as uh, those people. What were they? The hillbillies? Beverly hillbillies? It's not that. We're talking about olive oil, which was precious and price, uh, pricely or costly. And so they begin to kind of work out these deals with Egypt for that. They begin to work out agreements. We read of some of those agreements in the scriptures with Assyria. You know, how about this and how about that? Can I pay you this amount and that amount and so on and so forth? But notice what the Lord says in verse 1. He says, they are feeding on the wind. Here they are, and that's not very satisfying. Chew the air. Uh, You know, I'm still hungry. You know, it's like eating Chinese. You're hungry an hour later. You know, they're still hungry. They hoped in their own ingenuity that they could turn, if you will, the tide of destruction by making covenants with the very ones that are going to bring that destruction. And circumstances are going to reveal the vanity of their efforts. Verse 2 continues, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and he will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now he brings up Jacob Jacob, as you know, is a human being there in the book of Genesis who will eventually have his name changed to Israel. And from Jacob, we have the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. And so you have the northern kingdom, which they called Israel. You have the southern kingdom, what they called Judah. You put all of those kingdoms together. That's Jacob. That's Israel. And he says, the Lord is an indictment against Judah. will will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Jacob took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. 
Now, notice the opening words of verse 2. It says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. Think back, if you were with us, it was probably about four weeks ago, when we were in chapter 4, chapter 4 began where the Lord brought a charge, an indictment against Israel, the northern kingdom. And I compared it at that particular time, it was like a court case. And the Lord is that attorney who comes in and, and he looks at the jury and he says, look, here's the opening argument. Here's the indictment against Israel. Well, now, as we see here, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. So now this is, if you will, that court case in which he's going to present the evidence against the people there. He's going to present the charge against Judah. And in spite of the fact that Israel and Judah had been separate from one another for, at this time, about 250 years they were still one people. They were the Jewish people. And their destinies were pretty much inseparable the one from the other. Because the same pattern behavior that Israel showed, Judah did as well, only 100 or 200 years later. That makes sense? They were doing the same things. They didn't learn the lesson of their northern brothers. And so the same judgment that came upon the northern kingdom is going to come upon the southern kingdom as well. The Lord continues his statement and he begins here to recount God's dealings with Jacob. Again, that's the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And he says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Now, he's going to choose three events, all found in the book of Genesis. Love the book of Genesis. I hope you've been there recently in your quiet times. Read through the book, uh, as you should all the scriptures, certainly. But there you have these different accounts of Jacob's life. He's chosen three in particular. The first one is from Genesis chapter 25. This is when Jacob is about to be born, um, obviously from his mom. He's a twin there in the womb, and it was a crazy pregnancy, and there was all kinds of fighting, and she goes to the OBGYN, and he explains, well, you got twins. That's what's going on. Actually, the Lord reveals it. There's twins in there, and they were fighting inside the womb. They're going to be brothers. And it, it tells us that when Esau, that's Jacob's brother, when Esau is actually born, Jacob was fighting with him. He wanted to be the firstborn, it seems. And so he reaches his hand out of mom, grabs the heel of his brother Esau, and everyone thinks it's funny. It's not going to be funny in the years to come when these kids are 10 and 12 and 15 and they're beating each other up and when they're adults. But everyone kind of laughs at it. And so they decide to name this boy heel catcher. That's what Jacob means. It means heel catcher. And literally, that's what he was. He grabbed the heel of his brother. Oh, look at the little heel catcher. It's an odd name. All right. Now, the word also has gone to mean, this word Jacob, had also grown to mean one who catches another's heel. And the idea there is one who trips other people. And that's what Jacob would go on to be as well. Jacob was a, a guy who tripped other people. He deceived other people. He tricked them so that he could get over on them. And that's the type of man that this little heel catcher grows up to be in the early years of his life. And so the first story that we have, Hosea points us to this kid who didn't have a whole lot of character. The second incident that he draws our attention to is when Jacob, now that he's a man, not a little baby any longer, now that he's a man, it says that he strove with God. In his manhood, he strove with God there in verse 3. And Jacob, as he did with every other one of his relationships, almost every other one of his relationships, Jacob tried to trick the Lord as well. He tried to handle the Lord, snow the Lord, you know, say the right thing here, do the right thing there, and, you know, God will, he won't understand that I'm really a conniving, scheming, no good rat. And so he tried to get over there on the Lord, wrongly assuming the, the Lord wouldn't know. Now think about that. What better describes the religious attempts of the people of Israel and Judah, who thought that if they did a few prescribed rituals and they brought a couple of sacrifices and they commemorated certain feast days of the year, that God would be good with them and keep blessing them, as if he wouldn't really know what they were really like and what they did the evening before or the day before or the week earlier there. Just like Jacob, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people as a whole, they sought to deceive the Lord. But the Lord would not be deceived. And so the incident that he references, this is from Genesis 32. And there we read that one evening as Jacob slept, he wrestled with an angel. The passage makes it clear it's actually the, the angel of the Lord. 
and he'll wrestle through the evening with the angel of the Lord. And that account, Genesis 32 is a beautiful account of scripture. It's because it's in that account that the Lord broke Jacob. And Jacob was forever changed. He had a lot more changing still to do, but he was forever changed in that incident. It's symbolized in the fact that the Lord would say to him, what's your name? And he would say, it's Jacob. He says, well, we're not going to call you deceiver or huckster anymore. We're going to call you governed by God, prince of God. We're going to call you Israel. And he changes his name in that particular instance. And this is the case, some of you are familiar, where he's holding on to the Lord and in his distress, he's refusing to let go. The picture that I have in my mind is the Lord's about to walk away and Jacob down on his belly reaches his hands out and grabs his ankle and is holding on to the Lord, pleading with the Lord not to go unless he first blesses Jacob. Jacob had finally come to the place in his life where he was tired of the struggle. He was tired of deceiving people and tricking people and trying to get over on people. He wanted to just give up, essentially. And after a life, a long life of struggle, he finally allows the Lord and he cries out to the Lord, touch me, bless me, heal me spiritually, heal me. Not physically, but spiritually. Because unless you do, Jacob is saying, is there is no hope for me. And so he pleads for God's touch. Now we go to the third event in Hosea, uh, in the life of Jacob, and he says here, he met God at Bethel, there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. This is Genesis 35. And this is the vision of the staircase reaching down from heaven. You, maybe you know the story. If you don't know the story, you're like, what? Read the story. Genesis chapter 35, it's there for us. And God changes Jacob even further. Well, man, you just said, Greg, talking, now I'm you. You just said that God already changed him. We're never done changing. God has to keep changing us. There was a point where Jacob was broken. I would suggest that to use New Testament ter terminology, this is where Jacob was born again. But Jacob wasn't where he needed to be with the Lord. There was this changing process that God was going to do. And Genesis 35 is another one of those big points in his life where he changes him even further, causing him to leave that plot of ground where he laid down his head at night to sleep even more different than he was before he arrived there. And that is the scene, if you know, it's the dream of a ladder and on that ladder descending from heaven, that descends from heaven to the earth, the angels are going up and down and Jacob now will stand humbly there before God, ready to hear what God has for him and do whatever God tells him to do. Again, a broken man, broken even further as he submits himself to the lordship of his savior. Now, why bring up these incidents? Where are we going with this, Hosea? You know, let's squirrel. You know, it's one of those experiences like you're, you stay on ta ta target here. Well, the reason why I would suggest to you that he brings it up is because Hosea is exhorting Israel, Judah. He's exhorting the Jewish people of his day that they need to go through the same type of pathway to get to the Lord that Jacob himself did. And by that, what I mean is this, that there was a time like Jacob where the nation of Israel was once far from the Lord. But just like Jacob, he called him to himself. Then, like Jacob, Ephraim was strong in his own eyes. I can get over on anyone. I can trick anyone. I can deceive anyone. And just like Jacob, Ephraim would need to be brought to the place of submission to the Lord in his ways. And then finally, as the Lord did with Jacob, God's desire with Israel, with Ephraim, was to cause them to be forever changed. And so the same pathway that Jacob went through to get to where he was at the end of his life, that's what God wants to do in the nation of Israel. He wants to bring them to the place of complete and total restoration, physically, spiritually, geographically, all of those things. So his exhortation then to the nation of Israel, look at verse 6 of chapter 12. He says, so you. That's his exhortation. Let God do that in your life, Israel. My friends, that's what he says to you and I. Circle that in your Bibles. I don't know if, unless you're borrowing one of ours. Don't circle one of ours. Whatever. But if you have one of your own there, circle that in your Bible. Highlight it. So you. That's what God wants to do with each one of us. 
He wants to bring us to the point of breaking. Well, Greg, I had a point of breaking. Oh, I remember. I was 19 years old, 15 years old. It was a youth retreat. If you haven't had a breaking again from the time you were 15, you need another one. You need to keep coming into the Lord's presence. You need to keep coming before him in his word and let him break you even further. None of us have been transformed completely and totally to the image of his son. Has anyone in here? Certainly not. And I'm not trying to be jerky or anything about it. It's just a reality. None of us have. And we need to keep coming back to the Lord. And there's another area he's going to put his finger on. And another area he's going to put his finger on. He says here to them, so you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. He wants to do this transforming work. And notice, he says in verse 6, by the help of your God. He wants to do this transforming work. And he offers to even help us be transformed. So it's not like he's saying, look, I really want to see this in you now. Get out there and give it your best shot. He says, I'll do it. All you got to do is lay yourself down in front of me. You just got to lay yourself bare in front of me and I'll do that work in you. Our responsibility is to stop struggling. Our responsibility is to grab onto him and to petition him, beg him. That's the word that is there. And to beg him for his touch, for his blessing. He goes on then in verse 7 of chapter 12. Excuse me. He says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as I did in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there's iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, excuse me, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Now, Verse 7, your version, most of our versions have the word merchant there in verse 7, but some of your versions might have the word Canaanite or Canaan, and it seems like that's a big difference, merchant or Canaan. In actuality, the word Canaan or Canaanite means merchant. Specifically, it means a dishonest merchant. And essentially, that's what the Lord is calling them. You have become a dishonest merchant. You've become morally depraved. You've become corrupt. And Hosea says that the Jewish people that made their way into Canaan and were supposed to cause that land to become the promised land of God, in reality, they were converted, if you will, to the Canaanites. One can say that Canaan made Israel Canaan. Israel had taken on the character of the inhabitants of the land, the land that was given to them to possess as God's people. Instead, the land possessed them. And they had become as cunning as the Canaanite, a cheater, self-reliant, boaster, thought themselves to be so clever and exempt from detection. And yet the Lord says otherwise. Notice they say, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. See, everything was going well. On the outside, financially, everything was going great. That's clearly God's blessing, isn't it? Well, that's how a lot of people think. They had sought for their material wealth. They had acquired their material wealth. They used deceithood and falsehood or deception and falsehood to do so. They sunk to the level of the worldly people that were around them. They bought into this idea that since their bank accounts were full, that God must be pleased or at the very least satisfied with the type of people that they were, as we see, it was exact opposite. The Lord goes on in verse 9. He says, look, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. That means I've called you to myself. He says, I spoke to you through the prophets. They had all sorts of visions and things so that you would know my will. Look down at verse 13. He says there, by the prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. That is, I sent Moses to you. That he would be the deliverer, a savior, if you will, of the people. To lead them out of slavery. To guard them and protect them in the wilderness. And how did the Jewish people there respond to the overtures of the Lord in the past? 
Well, 12.11 goes on uh, to tell us that they continued to build their altars, not to God. They continue to make their sacrifices to the other gods. Verse 14, he says, if Ephraim has given bitter provocation, they've provoked the Lord, that says. And so the Lord will leave his blood guilt upon them. He will judge, he will repay them for their disgraceful deeds. They continue to reject the light that God was shining upon them. And thus they continue to descend further and further and further into places of spiritual darkness. I think that's an important lesson for us. <coughs> Excuse me. Light rejected invites increased spiritual darkness. And you think about all of our lives and the opportunities. I think about a lot of young people that grow up in Christian homes and things like that. And they have the opportunity to have light presented to them. Not just on a Sunday morning when they go to church. Most people in our society don't even go to church anymore. All right, but you know, this family, they get to go to church and they hear it there. And then around the house, mom and dad, they're talking about it. They get to hear it there, and that, yet they reject it. I'm not interested in that. What does my mom, what does my dad know, or whatever? And they decide to go to their own, their own direction. Light rejected invites increased spiritual darkness. And every time, and this isn't just for kids that grow up in a Christian home, every time each of us reject the Lord's leading or conviction in some way, we squelch the light in a small way. To use a different analogy that the scripture uses, our hearts harden over a little bit more than they already are. Our hearts are already hardened to the things of God. And we need the Lord to cut open our hearts. But every time we say, okay, Lord, yes, thank you for that, uh, that suggestion. Uh, I've decided to go in a different direction. Every time we reject the leading and the direction of the Lord, our hearts harden over a little bit more. God's revelation heeded and submitted to, it leads to greater revelation from the Lord. It leads to God's greater blessing in our lives. But when God's spirit ministers his truth to us and we reject it, that only serves to harden our hearts more than they already are. It's been said that light refused makes the darkness all the deeper. And th th that's why it's so important for us to ever seek to have a tender heart and conscience before the Lord, and to be quick to respond when the Lord leads. And so I'd encourage you, if the Lord is putting sort of pressure on an area of your life, however minuscule the, the thing might be, and now oh, that's not important, and I've talked to other Christians, they don't really care about this. If the Lord's putting it on your heart, respond, because that, that allows you to continue to have that tender heart. Is, is that clear? Do I have to like give you examples or whatever maybe you know so just think through all right lord you're telling me to do it i'm going to do it nobody else is doing it, but i'm going to do it and you keep your tender heart before the lord so that he can continue to minister to you it goes on in chapter 13 look at us it says the lord's indictment of israel can uh, no i'm sorry it says when ephraim spoke there was trembling he was exalted in israel but he incurred guilt through baal and he died and so he's continued to indict them here he says, there was a time when Israel was exalted, when they spoke and the nations trembled. I was just reading through the earlier chapters of the book of Joshua. And Israel is coming on the scene. They're about to enter into the promised land. And the nations that inhabited that land were freaked out. One of those nations actually approaches Israel beforehand to make an alliance with Israel so that they won't be destroyed. And they essentially say, look, we'll be your slaves, your servants, for the rest of days, we're just freaked out by you because we heard what you people do and what your God has. Look, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how they can bring a curse upon themselves. And he gives them instructions. And Revelation chapter 2, Revelation, not Numbers, but Revelation tells us, all Scripture, interpreting Scripture, it says, but I have a few things against you. This is other people. He says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Again, the point being there is, look, I can't curse them. God won't let me. But I can tell you how they can curse themselves. And how do they curse themselves? Introduce idolatry into their lives. And the children of Israel, there was a time when the enemies of Israel were powerless against them until the nation of Israel made themselves vulnerable. As it says, they incurred guilt through the worship 
of Baal in verse 1. Continues in verse 2, and now they sin more and more. And they make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver. All of them the work of craftsmen. Now why metal images? Because you could light the metal images on fire and they wouldn't be consumed. And look at that, it's not consumed. So what can we do with it? Well, you know, we could actually offer human sacrifice in there by laying them upon the hands of the metal images there. That, that's what's going on. They make for themselves, they sin more and more. They make for themselves metal images. I'll, I'll just add the meaning of that. They offer their own children into the fire in sacrifice to these false gods. Idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said, those who offer human sacrifices kiss the calves. This little phrase that was developed there. You know, do you, do you follow Jehovah? No, I'm one who kisses the calves. I follow the false gods. And though once an exalted people, they were now and they would now be brought low. And despite God's repeated warnings, they plunge themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into their idolatry. And what's the result? What's he say there in the passage? They're going to be as unstable as chaff that is blown by the wind, or as the morning dew that quickly evaporates. Chaff is basically like dust. And the wind, you know, just kind of picks it up and blows it where it wants to. And the morning dew quickly evaporates as soon as the sun comes out. That's how unstable the people would be. Verse 4, he goes on, But I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Again, the Lord makes reference back. I called you guys. I preserved you. I fed you. I protected you for those years in the wilderness. But notice what it says. Just like we saw last week, despite all those blessings, Israel forgot the Lord and instead turned to their idols. Now, why is that? Because humans must worship something. We're created to worship something. And if they're not going to worship the Lord, they're going to worship their idols. Well, I don't worship idols. I don't worship the Lord either, some might be saying. But I don't worship idols. Okay, so you worship your ease of living or your money or your wealth or your pleasure or whatever it is. You chase after those things to satisfy you and you get that new car and then you got to get a bigger one. And you get the boat and you get the shore house and you get the raise and you get the promotion and then you want the next one. That comes after it. Or you have that experience, and that was great. What are we doing next weekend? And they're always, we're always chasing after things. And we're filled, we're satisfied in Jesus Christ alone. You're like, well, that's what you think as a Christian. That's what you were created for, to be filled by him and by him alone. These guys, life became so good for them. And you can have all these things, but you've got to guard yourself. Life became so good for them, they stopped guarding themselves. And when they became filled with plenty, they forgot all about the Lord, he says there. And, because, and so, because they were lifted up in their own eyes and had forgot the Lord, they went astray. They served the gods of the foreign nations. And the Lord essentially says, look, you want the gods of the foreign nations, I'll deliver you to the foreign nations. You can have them. And so you can have that promotion and you can go on that career path and you can get all the way to that particular there and you get to that position and you sit down in your desk and you think to yourself, is this what I've been chasing? This is it? This is it. And so the Lord delivers them. Verse 7 of chapter 13, I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I'll fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs and tear open their breast, and there I'll deliver them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Here God, the one who previously protected and preserved them, now becomes their destroyer is what the passage says there, verse uh, 9 says. The King James Version words it a little bit differently, and it says this, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Now, both of those ideas are correct. If they would obey him, they would bring blessing upon their life from him. But because they continue to rebel against him, they brought forth destruction upon their life from him. And so he's both the destroyer and they're the destroyer or the blesser and the one that is being blessed. 
He says, the Lord has become to them like a lion, like a leopard, and like a bear robbed of her cubs. Again, because they refused to repent, the wild beast was appointed to devour them. There's a very interesting study that some of you might want to dig into. It's found in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and it talks about the the series of nations that are going to come against the nation of Israel prophetically into the future. And those nations are depicted as a as a lion, as a leopard, and as a cub. And so I, I imagine there is some c- kind of connection how the Lord was going to use ju- the judgment of the, the surrounding nations for the time to come to come against Israel. There's probably a connection there. Some of you might want to dig into it a little bit more. But the Lord says here, where's your king? Remember you demanded a king like all the other nations, princes and so on? Where are they to save you? Where are they to turn to? The ones you turn to instead of me, are they going to help you? And of course, the obvious answer is they're not going to. And the same independence and self-reliance and desire to be like all the other nations that caused Israel to demand a king from Samuel, that same attitude is causing them to go and to worship all these false idols. We're going to do what we want to do. And because of that, judgment would fall on them. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. That, the idea is the sin is on record and the book is complete. I can't write anything more in the book. They become, he says in verse 13, like a baby who refused to, refuses to come out of the womb and be born. The pangs of childbirth, he says, come for him. But he's an unwise son. At the right time, he doesn't present himself at the opening of the womb. Now, kind of a poetic way of saying this, that all of the signs of the error of their ways and the pending judgment, all of the signs that this woman is about to give birth, the only one who doesn't know it is the baby. Ignoring all of the signs and the pressure and the pushing and all those kinds of things, he says here for the nation of Israel, there's all these signs telling you that judgment is coming and the only one who doesn't know it is you. And you're ignoring it. Verse 14, he says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now the Apostle Paul quotes that passage to apply to our redemption in Christ Jesus. Okay? Here, however, the meaning is a very, very different meaning. The RSV, Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard, great versions of the Bible, New American Standard, translates it this way. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Now that translation fits the context of both the material before and the material after much better. I believe it's the correct translation in this instance. And so with all of this sin and all of this rejection on record, will God ransom them from the power of Sheol? That, and Sheol is the grave. Will he redeem them from death? Will he show him compassion? And again, immediately, no, he will not. Ultimately, yes, he will. Continuing on, verse 15, he says, though, and we're talking about Israel, Though Israel may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasure, treasury of every precious thing. Samaria will bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open, which is exactly what Assyria would do. And the, the repeated theme of this book is that Israel, the northern kingdom in particular, has passed the point of no return, that judgment is inevitable, and that the only thing that's going to bring them completely and totally back to God in repentance is to give them over to the consequences of their sin, so that once and for all they will be weaned of their desire for that sin. And in just about a decade's time, Hosea ministered for about 60 years We're in about the last eight years of his ministry as we come to these last few chapters here. In just about a decade's time, the kingdom of Assyria would enter into the land, if you will, as he says, like a wind blowing from the east. The the east wind in Israel was a dry, hot, deserty wind that would blow in, and the heat was so strong, it was like this sauna that would come in, and it would kill flowers and vegetation that were perfectly fine the day before. 
but this hot wind just kind of comes blowing in and, and just like you, you're like, oh, yeah, I just got to sit down or whatever. And that's what the flowers would do or plants or what have you. And Assyria, they would blow in like those hot east winds. Israel would be dried up and parched. Israel would go on to become a desert wasteland. For nearly 2,500 years, Israel pretty much looked like the rest of the Middle East. It's an amazing thing. If you ever get a chance to fly to Israel and you know, you're getting excited right before you're about to land, look out your window because you're gonna fly over some of the neighboring countries. Everything is brown and sandy and then you hit northern Israel and it's green and lush. It's remarkable what it is. And for about 2,000 years, even more than almost 2,500 years, Israel looked just like the surrounding nations around it. It had become a dry, parched, deserty land, all as part of the Lord's judgment. She would, once, she would, as it says, once and for all, she would bear her guilt. God would move his hand of protection from his people, only to have it replaced by the brutal and barbaric hand of the Assyrians. Such a sad history. It's a great Mother's Day message, isn't it? I feel so encouraged or whatever. It's a sad history of the Jewish people that we're looking at today. And it, what makes it even more sad is that it didn't have to be that way. You know, I think it's like the tragedy of the young person who grows up in the home of godly parents who love the Lord and are pouring into the, that child's life, those children's lives, and the kid decides, I'm doing what I want to do and I'm going where I want to go. You know, it's one thing for the person, you know, that is off in India somewhere and has no knowledge of, of the Lord Jesus Christ or something like that. It's another thing when the person says, yeah, I'm not interested. And all of the pain and all of the difficulty and all the struggle that comes from rejecting Christ, they have to go through when they never had to. And that's why Israel's history is such a sad one, because it didn't have to be that way. And for centuries now, 2,300, 2,400 years now, it has, Israel has been in that condition. But the hour is not too far distant. And I think in some ways it has already begun when the closing words that we read in the book of Daniel about the children of Israel and the nation of Israel will be fulfilled. Daniel chapter 12, 13 says this, As for you, Israel, go your way to the end. You will rest and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Another place you can look and read Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel taken out into the wilderness where there's essentially a graveyard of of these, uh, these dead bones that are there, dried up. They're just, I mean, they're not like, they didn't die like yesterday. These things, hundreds and thousands of years earlier. And the question is asked of him, can these bones live? And his response is, Lord, you know. And the reality is they can. And those bones represent the nation of Israel that will be healed, will be rebirthed. And I think we've already started the process in 1948, but we're not even anywhere near being to the total restoration that the Lord would have for the Jewish people. There is a day that is coming when the people of Israel will be completely and totally healed of their wandering. And they will recognize Jesus Christ for who he is. And they will confess him as savior and they will be restored. And my prayer is that that day would be soon because when that day comes, you go a few years before that, a little while before that, and the Lord's taken us home unto himself, those of us that name the name of Christ. And I am excited about that. Some of you are like, oh no, what does that mean? No, it's good. It's real good. And I can't wait. Amen? All right, we did well. Thank you for your patience with me. Wow, three chapters. Look at us. Next week, one chapter. We're going to have communion next week. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Lord, we're, we're uh, impressed once more by your love for us. Lord, we know we're like Israel. We go astray. We do, like Paul said, we do the exact things we said we would not do, and we don't do those things we committed ourselves that we would do. Paul called himself a wretched man. Lord, that's what we are. We're wretched individuals. And yet in your mercy, you've made a way. In your mercy, you've opened up our hearts to understand. In your kindness and in your grace, you sent forth your son so that he might take the penalty that we deserved. And Lord, like Paul said, you became just, sin must be judged, and the justifier so that we wouldn't have to be judged. 
And so, Father, we rejoice in that wonderful truth today. Lord, we do pray for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people around the world. And, Lord, we know that there are still dark days approaching them, as the prophecies say. And so, Lord, we just cry out and we ask, Lord, that each individual Jewish person that we know might come to know Jesus and that you would use us in their lives to point them to the true Messiah. Bless your people. We pray for the peace of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.